Welcome to the Beltway Broadcast, the premier podcast for the workplace learning and talent development professionals of the Association for Talent Development's Metro DC chapter. We've got some great resources in store for you today. Hello, fellow ATDers. I'm Stephanie Hupka, the 2021 Vice President of Finance. I'm Christina Eanes, the 2021 Director of Virtual Programs for the Metro DC Chapter of the Association for Talent Development. And I'm Leticia Niago, Vice President of Learning. We also have Helena Hodges, Director of Technology and Operations, as our producer. For this episode, we're interviewing an award-winning consultant, internationally known speaker, author of five books, Executive Director of Quinnovation, Dr. Clark Quinn. Welcome, Clark. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be here with you. I will immodestly correct you and say it's actually six books now. Oh, my goodness. That's <laughs> yeah. a welcome correction. Gosh, I am, I'm very happy you, you mentioned that, and I'm looking forward to learning more about them as we go. Well, we're thrilled to have you on today. Today's topic is learning science for talent development professionals. This tends to be one of those topics where everybody sits up a little straighter. You see people's ears perk up a little. So I'm really looking forward to learning more from you today. And before we get started, before we even head down that road, I would love it if you'd share a little bit about yourself with our listeners. Thank you for the opportunity. And it helps, I think, to, unfortunately, to start a wee bit uh, back. I was doing computer science and tutoring on the side for some extra money, physics, chemistry, calculus. And I saw the, um, I got a job doing the computer support for the office that did the tutoring. And that's where I saw this connection between computers and learning and said, hey, that's interesting. And I ended up designing my own major and it's been my career ever since. And my first job out of college was designing and programming educational computer games. And I realized we didn't know enough. And that drove me to go back to get a PhD in what was effectively applied cognitive science. And that's the grounding that's led me to continue to investigate how our, how we think, work, and learn, you know, the cognitive implications and applying that to the design of solutions for organization. This has taken strange twists and turns. I was an academic for a while, um, worked, uh, in some organizations and I've been a consultant for the past 20 years, but that, uh, focus on how our brains work, essentially learning science, and what that means in practice for us trying to meet real people's real needs and goals characterizes, you know, what drives me and why we end up talking about learning science. That's a fascinating way to get into this field. You know, we hear a lot of people who are accidental instructional <laughs> designers, for example. You're basically the accidental cognitive scientist, um, which is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny. I don't actually have formal instructional design training, but my curiosity about learning, I've looked at behavioral learning, cognitive learning, social learning. I've looked at machine learning. Yeah. <laughs> and the same thing, you know, with design, you know, I've looked at uh, instructional design, but I've looked at you know, reading on my own as opposed to formal training, but yep. uh, also graphic design and software engineering and industrial design. And similarly with engagement, you know, role-playing, computer games, movies and theater, what makes all these work? And it's synthesizing that that I find leads us to some really interesting outputs. You know, there are prescriptions from science, but integrating them to create successful learning experiences is, you know, a necessary and fun activity 
because it combines that science and creativity in ways that help people, which is really cool. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that's a great segue into where I think we should start, kind of the the overall view of this topic. What is learning science? And more importantly, why do talent development professionals need to understand it? Learning science is, not surprisingly, the systematic study of learning. Yeah. The field itself got started, uh, interestingly, in the 1980s, uh, scientists were looking at thinking and uh, people like Don Norman, my PhD advisor, was recognizing that there were results coming from linguistics and anthropology and sociology and neuroscience and co- computer science and cognitive psychology. And they said, hey, all these people are doing stuff independently. They don't know what they're doing. Let's create this umbrella and call it cognitive science. So we have a way to ex- interact and learn from one another instead of reinventing the wheel. That led in the 90s to that same sort of thing happening around learning science. The cognitive scientists who'd watched the emergence of cognitive science were looking at learning and said, oh, there's stuff going on in ed psych and instructional design, and we need a similar umbrella. And in a sense, that's what learning science is, is the interdisciplinary study of how humans learn and the implications for designing instruction, which is what we're on about. Now, the reason we should be paying attention is because while we have great theories that give us good prescriptions, when we get into the weeds with specific subjects, we may find a lack of uh, specific research prescriptions. And there we have two steps we can do. And the smart one is to look for theory to predict what we should do. If we can't do that, then we actually have to do trial and error experiments. And that's a little bit more costly in time and effort. So having that background of the theories that have emerged from learning science gives us a good way to design better, filling in the gaps that occur as we face new situations and and, uh, new challenges. I want to argue to be good professional practitioners, we should be following the evidence-based practices the same as you would expect your doctor or your lawyer or your accountant to do. I think that's a fantastic perspective to have. And I think many of us who are practitioners in the field have certainly seen the value in that. It can be really helpful to have models and theories and and things like that that you're working from. It gives you that path forward and a better sense as to why something could work or should work, as opposed to some of the guesswork sometimes that can go into the development of things like training. And I'm curious, too, Learning science and neuroscience and brain science have practically become buzzwords in our industry over the last few years. Attending conferences like ATD's International Conference, for example, you always see sessions. Oftentimes, you're now seeing tracks very specific to this part of the field. There's a lot of enthusiasm around it. But I think for many practitioners, it's easy to feel overwhelmed by the data and the research that support them. So I'm curious, do you have any advice that or advice that you would give to practitioners who are just starting to get comfortable with learning science? Is there a good place for them to start? Uh, Yes, there is. Um, I want to be clear. Uh, Some of the um, labels that are being bandied around 
actually yeah. are somewhat misleading in our marketing hype. Mm-hmm. So brain-based learning is sort of, as a colleague has suggested, it's like leg-based walking. <laughs> it's kind of unnecessary. And yeah. neuroscience is, is actually at the wrong level. And if you look at scientists like Daniel Willingham, a cognitive scientist, they suggesting that, yes, the underpinning engine of our brains is neural, but it's sort of like worrying about driving, thinking about the firing of the individual cylinders. It's just the wrong level. What we really want to do is, you know, the way we interact with people is through words and images. And that's at the cognitive and semantic level. So neuroscience is, you know, it's, it, it sounds really cool. And sure, there's great research being gone, going on with fMRI and other things. But the valuable uh, level for making the right analysis and prescriptions is at the cognitive level and great sources for this. The problem is the best source are research journals. And unfortunately, they're written in this impenetrable language co- known as academies. That's like English, but deliberately <laughs> <Yeah>. more obscure. <laughs> so um, what you, you know, I strongly recommend if you can read that, but you to dig into it, you have to understand what good experimentation methodology is and and what the power of statistical analysis means and a variety of things. So the best shortcut is to look to the research translators, those people who have the background, have the PhDs in ed psych and psychology and um, instructional design, and have been trained to read that but actually practice in the real world and translate that into understandable language. And we have a number of people who have demonstrated this over time, whether it's Michael Allen, Will Tyheimer, Julie Dirksen, Patty Shank, Miriam Nealon. There's a whole suite of people and they are doing things like, you know, they're being interviewed, they're writing blog posts, they're writing chapters, they're writing books. Following those people is a really great way to find what's best. Uh, tested and true. They make it understandable and they have demonstrated over time a reliable track record of not being swayed by the latest trend, not trying to push any particular agenda to sell anything that they have a vested interest in, but they just reliably translate valuable information. And those are the people you should look to, you should follow them, you should find them, you should hear them speak and pay attention to them and hire them, by the way. That is great advice. And I think you're right. It can be really difficult to make the translation between some of the academic writing that's out there, which, of course, would be a very natural place for many of us to turn to versus being able to understand it and then apply it. And that leads me to my next question. When it comes to learning science, what does practical application look like? It looks like good instructional design proper instructional. And if you look at the instructional design proposed by the theorists, and they've updated over time. So David Merrill started with component display theory and he went to ID2 and now he's at Pebble and Upon. They're adapting to changes in our understanding, but they have rigor in their process that it tends to be wiped away when we start making shortcuts for efficiency and we start, you know, not understanding that what subject matter experts tell us is can't be what they really do. It has to be what they know because they don't have access to what they really do. And so the extra process that you have to do to pull out information. So that's uh, doing those extra steps that are understood to be necessary to get 
really into the appropriate objectives and then aligning that, creating sufficient practice. That's what's necessary. And do, actually having people perform as their assessment and learning experience, as their practice, as opposed to just testing their knowledge about things in cognitive science, we know that. This challenging thing about this is that the nuances are subtle. What well-produced e-learning and well-designed and well-produced e-learning are hard to tell apart unless you know the underlying learning science. And so people who don't know, and we shouldn't expect our stakeholders, you know, our executives and our even our audiences to understand that. We need to get them to trust us to do it right. And then we have to live up to that expectation. So the process is different in terms of working harder up front to get appropriate real performance objectives, and then focusing on making sure that we get the necessary practice going, and then we resource around that. Instead of designing an introduction and a content and example and then practice and then we're done, taking content and adding a quiz to it, we have to do extra work to really understand the objective and then design the practice first. When you're doing that, you're applying what learning science has told us. I think that is really valuable. And I think you also hit on one of the bigger challenges that many people do face when it comes to practical application. And that is around getting the buy-in for that because good instructional design that is really based on some of these theories and practices, it takes a little longer most of the time, you know, to, to build some of that in. And in a world where many of us have managers or executives who are looking for something fast, something on budget, it can be difficult to make that case. And I'm curious, do you have any thoughts around that or any advice as far as how someone might be able to bring in some of the learning science or some of the data behind this to help make the case for why it's so important to spend that time building something that's really based on the right foundation? It is challenging. I have to uh, agree. And I have argued that the most important thing to do is try and bring in measurement of impact, not measuring mm -hmm. just whether, you know, people like what we do, but is it making a change that actually, you know, because as the saying goes, what's measured matters. And so if you're measuring your actual impact, but that requires breaking out of your silo, you have to work with the yeah. business owners and say, I need your data. I need you to tell me what measure is not up to scratch and what it should look like when it is up to scratch. And then we want to be testing to see if what we're doing is making that change. That's really hard conversation to have. There's a lot of pushback. Oh, just do, I literally, somebody in one of my workshops said, I tried to do something important and appropriate. And my, you know, the stakeholder just said, just do that stuff you do. <laughs> and that's the, the mindset you're facing. And people, you know, have been to school. And so if it looks like school, it, it's effective. And they don't realize that school wasn't particularly effective either. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we, we, we've got these challenges. So I, you know, getting space for measurement. Uh, somebody else has used an interesting approach. I said, look, you use evidence-based practices for building our products, for selling our services, whatever. Why won't you let me apply evidence-based practice in what I do? Now, there is one trick you can use that stop creating learning for every performance problem. There are times when just a job aid is a better solution and is faster and cheaper. It still takes a little development and testing and refinement, but that may be a better solution and a less costly and time consuming 
approach to a problem. And then that gives you more time to when you need to do real learning to actually have the resources available to do it properly. So it's a shift in the mentality. You got to step out of course design and start moving into performance consulting and looking at others' problems and, you know, realize that performance problems, not all are about knowledge and skills. And yet we tend to throw courses at all the problems regardless. And that's not a useful uh, way to expend our resources. So, you know, it's, it's sort of pushing at both ends. Start finding better solutions to problems that people are trying to throw courses at and reserve your resources. And then when you do need a course, do it right. I think that's terrific advice. I bet there are a lot of people listening who are writing that one down because I think you're absolutely right. There are so many times where we hear we just need to throw learning or training at the problem. Sometimes it's not a problem that can be solved through training and you're going to waste a lot of time and resources building a solution that won't actually solve the problem that you need to have solved. So thank you. Thank you for mentioning that. To shift gears a little bit, um, in your new book, book number six, I think, Learning Science for Instructional Designers from Cognition to Application, you wrote a chapter on emotion. Get, let's get emotional. What is the connection between the role that emotions play in a learner's success and how we can leverage that data when designing training? Well, there's several converging forms of evidence that paying attention to the emotional component of the learning experience is important. One is that, you know, if you create a positive affect, at least at first, people are more willing to explore more broadly. And you really do need an exploration uh, frame of mind to help people acquire new skills. And the second thing is the more memorable things are, the, the more you've made them emotionally aware and impactful, the better the learning sticks. So you really want to consider the emotional trajectory just as you, through the learning experience, just as you do the sort of cognitive trajectory. You want to remove anxiety. Anxiety is an incredible impediment to learning. So you want to make it safe to experiment and learn. You want to motivate people up front. Too often we think they have to know why it's important. We don't help connect that, make that connection for them. And then they don't see it. So people, you want to hook people in up front. Uh, with getting, you know, you know, I really do need this or, you know, I don't, I'm curious about this. Then you need to maintain that commitment through learning experience so that they're willing to try things, willing to give effort instead of just randomly clicking just to get through it. When you do that, you increase the likelihood to the outcome. And when I, I argue for learning experience design as a label in to replace instructional design. I realize that's somewhat controversial. Um, and my argument is a bit less emotional and more marketing. I mean, less, you know, empirical and more marketing. But too often instructional design has ignored the em- emotional component. And I want to suggest we want to elegantly integrate the learning science with the engagement. And in fact, learning science does include the engagement, but this is a way to help people explicitly think about the emotional component. And when we do that, when we think about both of those as a coherent whole, we're liable to end up with learning that is what I like the phrase that Seymour Papert used, hard fun. Trivial fun actually doesn't lead to better learning and pure cognitive stuff doesn't hook in the emotions and doesn't lead to better learning. But when we get those aligned, we get what we call hard fun. And that's when we get the best learning outcomes. And that's why I think it's 
an important consideration. I really like that term, hard fun. I mean, we always want to develop learning and training experiences that have that element of fun in it. But I do like the idea that we should be aware that there is real work that's going on in in the trainings that we're putting together. I think that that's a nice way of capturing that. So thinking a little bit about learning science, I think one thing that's that is for sure is that learning science is constantly evolving. And I know that you shared a few of the practitioners who we should be following and learning from and attending courses. I'm wondering if you have any additional resources or recommendations as far as how practitioners can stay current in a world that is kind of constantly changing. Well, the interesting thing, and in fact, one of the chapters in the book is on metal learning or learning to learn and yeah. mastering that is an important component to become an effective learner. Because it turns out our K-12 and higher education systems kind of fail at developing that. They pay lip service to it, but they don't really develop it. And there are skills that mm-hmm. you shouldn't bet that you have effective self-learners in your organization. You should explicitly develop those. And so we should be applying that to ourselves and making ourselves more effective learners. There are ways to stay up. A, a recent... Um, New list you can pay attention to is Learning Science Weekly. Um, they, every week uh, on Fridays, they drop some research translations so they can do that. Uh, obviously, you go to the appropriate conferences, but pay attention carefully to the people who are talking legitimate science versus pushing, have a particular agenda. One of the things I talk about in being a good learning science person is is being able to do a validity check. First, just give it the sniff test. If it doesn't make a causal story uh, that makes sense, you know, you should probably just walk past it. The second thing is then cut it down to the quick and say, what do, would this mean for me? What would I have to do differently? And what would be the benefit I would get from that? And again, if that doesn't end up being relevant, you can stop there. Then you want to track back and say, who's telling me this? Who is this person? What is their vested interest? Is anybody else agreeing with them or is anybody else contradicting them? Then if you can't find the answers, if you can't find somebody trustworthy to tell, you may have to dig into the research and see or run a test. But being aware of those, of being a critical consumer, I guess is the best way to put it, is probably an important part of this as well. I'm participating right now. I was earlier this morning in a couple sessions of the Learning Development Accelerators Learning Development Conference, and it's much smaller than ATD ICE. It is specifically focused on evidence-based presentations, and that there's a filter before it ever comes to the schedule. So there's a valuable uh, resource. Obviously, the learning science community of practice in ATD has become pretty good at presenting valuable information. So that's another great source. And um, Alexandria Clapp is, does a, is doing a really good job of driving that and maintaining the quality of there. So those are a few places off the top of my head uh, that I can uh, recommend. Oh, that's terrific. Yeah, there are a lot of good resources. I really appreciate your thoughts and guidance as far as finding the resources to pay attention to. Because I think it can get very easy to follow the wrong path to, you know, to focus on on some of the 
the perhaps the, the data and information that hasn't quite been validated. So uh, it's very helpful to think about where we can find good current factual information. Great recommendations. And, and do watch out. The, the previous book I did for HD was on myths. And there are a lot of them that permeate our industry that are still persistent. Yeah. And some of these people are doing it from well-intentioned but misguided uh, reasons. And other people, you know, are doing it because uh, it's quite mercenary. They're making money from it. So the, uh, a lot of these instruments people use in, in organizations, for instance, are fundamentally flawed. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, you want to... Um, do reality checks and and try and stay current. Both of those are valuable things. I didn't mention, by the way, another person who writes for ATD who's a, a really good translator is Ruth Clark. Um, and to another oh, yes. extent, probably Elaine Beach. So oh. there's a great number of people in ATD and other places that you really should be paying attention to. That's a great community. All right, we have received a lot of awesome information. And Clark, we'd like to get just a little bit more from you. So at the end of each episode, we have five rapid fire style questions. Each question requires less than 60 seconds to respond. Are you ready? As ready as I'm going to get. <laughs> Excellent. No pressure. So, <laughs> no pressure. No. <laughs> so give us one book that all talent development professionals, in addition to everything else we've already mentioned today, must read and why. I'm going to be extremely immodest, and I'm going to recommend my third book, uh, actually my fourth book, Revolutionize Learning and Development. And that was a book I wrote because of just the issues we've been talking about, the barriers to doing effective learning and development, moving beyond courses, looking at performance consulting, and also moving on to informal learning. There are a few others that cover the same area, but I really, that was a book that stated what I felt what the, our industry needed to hear. It's not diplomatic, <laughs> but it, it's, it's documented. And um, I love my books and there are other great books, but when I had to figure of one, that was one where I really tried to put a message that I wanted uh, beyond you know, learning science that I really think our industry needs to hear. Awesome. Okay, now give us one tool that you recently learned about and immediately started using. That one was is tough because recently um, I've been exploring tools for so long uh, that picking a recent one is going to be challenging. You know, uh, I am going to mention OmniGraffle and it's not really all that recent and it's only Mac, but I find diagramming so powerful as a way to understand things. And it made it so easy for me to diagram that I tried in different ways and PowerPoint and stuff. And this one just really uh, worked for me. and. I'm going to stick with that as my recommendation. If you're on a Mac, uh, OmniGraffle is expensive, but it is really neat until I find oh, something nice. better. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. So what is the best related, or I should say the best piece of talent development related advice you've ever been given? Um, it was probably in uh, Guy Wallace pointed me to a quote by Joe Harless. And uh, this brings out the performance consulting. The quote is, um, inside every bloated training course, there's a thin job aid struggling to get out. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, oh, it, I love that. It's, it's just a way to focus on performance consulting instead of immediately throwing a course at a solution. It's not always right, but it's just a, a nice frame of mind to have with you. 
Oh, <laughs> all right. What's one thing you're excited about that's coming up in 2021, 2022? Ah, okay. Um, that's interesting. Well, I'm, I'm excited about ATD Ice and DevLearn. Uh, actually, <laughs> getting out of l and I'm really excited about vaccines, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't have to be an L&D at all. <laughs> I think we're all excited about that. <laughs> yep. And finally, what are you deeply grateful for right now in our talent development industry? Well, and this is going to pivot on the same issue, but I'm actually excited about the pandemic. And I know that sounds crazy and evil and, and wicked, but just, you know, it's been horrible in terms of the loss of life. But it, it when it shifted us to force to go online, it really opened up our minds to whether this can work and has emphasized the value of using technology and learning as an alternative to having to be face to face and has really opened up our minds to the opportunities of blended learning. It's interesting, uh, Donald Clark is another person who's extremely irreverent, but very insightful. And he was pointing to Eric Mazur of Harvard as a uh, uh, one of his new learning theorists because he is a physicist, but he applied that same sort of empirical research to his teaching and ended up with some uh, new insights. And he are now argues fa- just face-to-face learning is criminal almost. <laughs> and I, I think it's just, you know, if you're looking for a silver lining, pandemic has really emphasized, you know, besides also showing the importance of frontline workers and a bunch of people who weren't getting recognition, I think it's really opened up our minds to the possibility of taking advantage of technology to drastically improve our learning if with the right mindset. Oh, yeah. I'm right there with you. I mean, it's amazing. It's astounding, actually, the human ingenuity that comes out of adversity. That's very, very true. Uh, somebody yeah. just said, what's the greatest uh, driver of innovation? Accident. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so true. Well, Clark, we are so grateful to you for joining us today to share your wisdom with all of our learners. So thank you so much for being here. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity. A pleasure. I just hope we can keep pushing to do better and better learning. Well, I appreciate you challenging us to do exactly that. I think you've done that for everyone who will have the opportunity to listen to today's episode. And of course, a big thank you to my co-hosts as well. Love the interesting insights. Thank you. Yes, I love it. Thank you so much. And of course, a big thank you to our community for listening today. And before you go, we have a message from our producer, Helena Hodges. Do you want to connect with like-minded talent development professionals? Then go to dcatd.org forward slash COPs to learn more about our independent consultants, instructional design, leadership development, and government communities of practice. Want to network with other chapter members? Join the Metro DC chapter of ATD members on LinkedIn today.